0: Well, it's a pleasure to be with you uh, again this year. can't believe it's already here. Open your Bibles up, if you would, to John chapter 5. Corinne and I look forward to this time every year, and I'm not really sure uh, how you view it or, or what you do uh, in terms of preparation for it, but my wife and I really view this time as kind of a, a resharpening, maybe a refocusing Not that we ever have a desire to be off focus, but it seems like we come every year a little closer to the mark at what we're after. And uh, what I want to talk to you about tonight is really, out of John chapter 5, is really what we're after, uh, in my my opinion, and what I really believe uh, John is doing. Uh, We want to look at specifically tonight, John chapter 5, verses 31 through 35. And this section uh, here, verses 31, uh, is, begins the testimony section. And actually, verse 30 begins the te- testimony section. The passage or the, pa- uh, the chapter breaks down like this. You have John chapter 5, the first 15 verses uh, dedicated to retelling the story of when Jesus first came into the temple. Uh, the second time. <laughs> when he comes into the temple, uh, the second time, it's, uh, it's another feast. And he is there and, of course, does uh, a number of things. He heals a man who's been uh, there uh, as an invalid for 38 years um, and he rubs up against wrong the Jewish leadership of Israel and they begin to persecute him it tells us in verse 16 which begins the new section in that chapter verses 16 down through verse 29 is the conversation that Jesus is having, and he dominates most of the conversation, but it's the conversation he's having with them regarding what he's just done in the 15 verses, trying to explain to them what has been done. And he ends that section with verse 30, which begins the last section of the chapter, which is the testimony section. Verse 30 is Jesus' testimony, and then verses 31 through the remainder of the chapter are all those testimonies uh, that are given to confirm what Jesus uh, has been saying. I really want what's going on in Jesus' language here to go on in my life. Uh, been coming to find, uh, been longing for it more and more, that the mask that I wear from time to time would fall away and I would just become the mask. Uh, it's maybe some theological language I picked up in college. Uh, the biblical language would be given in Matthew, where it's the separation of the sheeps and the goats. Uh, I've come to marvel at that passage. Not only is it the fact that the sheeps don't know they're sheeps and the goats don't know they're goats, but the actions of the sheeps and goats don't make them sheeps and goats. See, the sheep actions are just actions that sheeps have. And goat actions are the actions that the goats have. See, when we go to heaven or however you picture that, the last day, the judgment, which is really from the picture of Matthew is just a, the judgment has already taken place and Jesus is just separating who is who. And he looks out at the crowd of people and he says, you're a goat, get over there. And you're a sheep, come over here and get over there. You're not a sheep and you're a goat. And and he's, he's dividing these back and forth and they are already sheeps and goats. And the kinds of things, how it kind of works is, is you... See a goat does not do things and therefore make it a goat the goat is a goat and therefore does goat things. Okay? The stuff that the sheep's do don't make it a sheep the sheep is a sheep and it just does sheep things. You understand? So if I went around doing goat things it wouldn't make me a goat, you understand? Either I'm a sheep or I goat, and it's the product of who I do. And it's the way we've been talking about sin or the way that I've been kind of rethinking my idea of sin. Seems like all my my life as a preacher and and maybe a a, a Christian, I've been trying to, to figure out what sin is, therefore, to understand who I am. Well, maybe sin is just the product of who I am, that I am a man. And living out of my own resource, out of my own abilities, out of my own strength, out of my own mindset, just the person that I am, I'm going to produce sin, which is the product of who I am. If that makes sense. Now, this is the language that Jesus is using to try to describe to the leaders of Israel uh, what's going on in him. They're all upset over the things that he's done in the temple. And we're going to be talking about this in the morning sessions. Uh, so we really don't need to go in too specific in it. But the language that Jesus uses is so specific. It's, it's the product of who he is, of what he's doing. But it's not only the product of who he is. It's the product of who his father is. And when they're upset with him about what he's doing, what he's trying to convey them, what he's trying to convey them, how he's trying to convey them, what he's trying to convey them, that sort of, however you say that, is that what's going on in me that makes me do what I do is what's going on inside of the Father that makes him do what he does. You understand? Uh, it's 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 the it's the burn and the passion and the heartbeat of the father that makes him do what he does. Is the burn and the passion and the heartbeat of Jesus that makes him do what he does? So if in essence if they're upset with Jesus, then they better be upset with the father, because what Jesus is doing is the same thing that the father is doing, which contradicts them all over the place. Because they not only suggest that uh, uh, Jesus is uh, upsetting them and and is breaking their laws, but all, uh, ultimately uh, he is offending God. Now the mask. This leads me to know that, see, Christianity is not the product of my discipline. Christianity is not the product of my strength. Christianity is not the product of my own courage, my own own actions, my own own buckling down, my trying hard. Christianity is not the product of that, you understand. Christianity is the product, from his own language, of all that that is going on in his father is taking place inside of me. And I no longer, see the time is coming when I'm no longer going to have to wear a mask, you understand. But I will become this mask when I come into church and I don't particularly like Keith. And I look at him and there's anger and there's frustration and there's bitterness because of all the things that's taking place between our relationship. And I put this mask on and I smile at him and say, wow, of course I forgive you, man. No, I don't hold any hard feelings against you. And I wear that mask. I go to a teen camp and, and uh, one of the counselors offends me. And instead of letting loose what I really would like to do to that person or, or, or letting outside what I really feel about that person, I put on this mask and I smile and say, well, that didn't offend me. And I go to Barnes and Noble's and I walk by the men's rack, which if you're a man, you really can't go to the men's rack in Barnes and Noble. And I put on the mask. And I hide all the feelings inside about how I feel about the pictures on those things. Wouldn't it be something? If what Jesus is talking about is not mask language, it's not hiding the way that I really feel, it's not just putting on a smiling face when all the while I've got this turmoil going on inside of me and I put on this, cover up this front on the outside and I smile and I'm really, it's real, I'm really good at putting on that mask and it's hard to do, but I discipline myself and I try really hard. And See, that wouldn't be the way that I would describe my walk with Jesus. I would just become that mask. That when I look at that picture, see, I don't have to hide the way that I really feel because the the way I really feel is the way that he feels. Does that make sense at all? See, it's it's no longer it's no longer faking. see see, what Jesus is talking about is is the reality of what's going on in him. It's it's not a show. It's he cannot help himself. See, when they ask him why he did in the temple, why he did what he did in the temple, his response is is I can't help it the same thing my dad's doing because what makes him what makes him do what he do makes me do what I do and I can't stop what see it's just, it's hard as now what he's been talking about and again this comes across so clear and, and so firm what he's been talking about in this passage is none other than the plan of God and the plan of God to bring you up to speed to where we're going to be at this evening the plan of God is kind of stamped all over this all over this passage and of course uh, I want to read for you. Uh, a passage out of the Old Testament. Uh, the passage out of the Old Testament is in the book of Ezekiel. And you can turn there or I can just read it to you. It's Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. All that I've been talking to you about is has been the plan of God. See, this is what God has destined. This is what he has longed for. Uh, when I first really began to get into the, what John was trying to talk about, it began to dawn on me that... You see, the new covenant, God is calling us to live a life that we cannot possibly live. He calls us to be holy. Well, there's no way I can be holy, you understand. There's no way that I can be the way that God is. There's no way that I can act the way that God, because I am not God. Which the plan of God is for that to take place in our life, if you understand. And when you come in the book of Ezekiel, again, this is the plan of God. This is where God has been leading. This is what God has been doing. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning at verse 25. This is what he says. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I need to study that word spirit more there. But it seems like that's the idea of an attitude. It's a, that, that kind of a thing. Okay? It's not like the Holy Spirit. It's not big spirit. I okay? uh, will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone And give you a heart of flesh. Now listen to this. And I will put my spirit in you. And cause you to follow my decrees. And be careful to keep all my laws. So see God's already talking in the Old Testament. About what he's going to do in the New Testament. So all that Jesus is talking about. Is the plan of God that's coming to fulfillment in our life. So all that Jesus is doing here. All that he's talking about here. Is the plan of God that's finally surfacing in this hour. Does that make sense? And that also, uh, you not only hear it in terms of certain Old Testament passages, but it's very plain within the passage. Um, Go down with me to verse uh, 26. No, verse 28. Jesus says, do not be amazed at this. Do not be amazed at what I'm saying. For a time is coming... When all who are in the graves will hear the voice and come out, and those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And he mentions this idea of time. Now, the idea of the time or the hour, is very, it's very common language throughout the Gospel of John. And as you begin to move through the Gospel, you're going to find that this is used in key passages throughout the gospel and it's the idea is is that God has this plan that's being that's being brought to pass a a plan that's really being brought about by God and Jesus is living in response to this plan and even now get this one and this is one of the, the powerful positions that I'm coming to Jesus is bound to that plan in which God is bringing about A plan that was talked about from the Old Testament scriptures, which I believe Jesus is accountable to the Old Testament scriptures. I I believe that. I'm coming to that kind of conclusion. That Jesus did not just walk around and do his own thing. We'd all agree with that. And Jesus didn't come around and act when he wanted to act. That his actions were dependent upon the Father and upon the Father's actions, upon the Father's plan that he's bringing about, which was already talked about in the Old Testament, which was to bring us into intimacy with him and create inside of us what's going on inside of Jesus. Okay, So it's plan language all through this passage. Now, he's been talking about this comes down to verse 30 and it's the it, it's the it's the statement of this uh of his all that he said and he puts it in testimony format because this is really it, it's it's a formal setting verse 30 says by myself I can do nothing which is really strong language has to do with the idea that apart from the father I'm worthless Apart from the Father, I'm, I, I'm unable to perform. Apart from the, uh, the Father, I'm absolutely useless. I mean, that's really, really powerful language that he's using from our standpoint, especially. Uh, I judge only as I hear. His judgments are ju- uh, based on that. Uh, for I, uh, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Then you come into our passage and you begin the testimony section. Okay, And the first testimony is verses 31 through 35, and it is the testimony of John the Baptist. And I want to read that for us at this time. John chapter 5, verses 31 through 35. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Therefore, uh, or there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony, testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light. And you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Father, we love you this evening. I'm coming to realize that a great desperation in my life that cannot be filled with popularity... It cannot be filled with uh, ministry. It can't be filled with a full slate. It can't even be filled with human or even spiritual achievements. There is a great need, Father, for me to be kingdom-minded. For me to fit in your plan. May you squash, may you bring to nothing, may you conquer anything in our lives this evening that would threaten that plan in our lives. For that is the only good. Open our eyes to the truth of your word this evening and we'll give you all the praise. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus, amen. Verse 31 begins by Jesus highlighting the obvious in their culture. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. And what he's speaking of here is really the idea of their judicial system, which is talked about back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19, uh, right after some messianic prophecies. uh, That is ironic. But uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, he makes these statements that what you have is a man who's being put on trial. okay? Who's going to be accused of a crime. They cannot be proven guilty unless uh, and really that's kind of the kind of the attitude. But the idea is, is his testimony in his defense is not valid unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Now, that's on either side, both for the defense and for the prosecution. okay? each each testimony has to be validated by two or three more witnesses. And so Jesus is playing by their rules, he's coming under their authority, he's playing by their game, he's doing this in the proper way, responding to what they're doing, and he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Now, this is not to say that his testimony needs to be validated by someone else, but he is coming under the authority of what they're doing, if that makes sense, okay? he, He has plenty of testimony about this. Now, he mentions in 32, and we really don't, I don't really know how to deal with this passage, it seems to be almost insignificant in light of the rest of the testimonies. He says, there is another who testifies in my behavior. Some think that's God, some think that's John the Baptist. Okay? And scholars argue over that kind of thing. My opinion, John the Baptist testifies down in a few verses and God testifies down in a few verses the Father, so it really doesn't matter who it is. So verse 32, Jesus says, listen, there is another who testifies in my behavior and I know that his testimony about me is valid. It fits the context to say, now that is John the Baptist. Now, now get this. Jesus says, you have sent to John. He has testified to the truth. Uh, really like that. When my wife and I are in an argument uh, and I call witnesses, I, uh, I always pick the best witnesses. Okay. I, that's going to support my position. That's going to be from my side, my slant. Okay. Um, Jesus is being interrogated. Uh, trying, to, trying to get them to understand that all that's taking place in his ministry is not the product of what he's doing. It's the product of his father, not only in action, but in intention, in motivation, that he is literally moved like the father is moved, and his life is an outspill of the plan of the father, and that if they're upset with him, ultimately they're going to have to be upset with the father. Okay? He's trying to get this across to them, that this is the plan of God. This is the coming of the kingdom that God has been dreaming about. This is the fulfillment of the old covenant. Wow, I mean, just great stuff. Trying to get them to understand this. And of course, they're putting him on trial. It's this this judicial formal setting and they're needing witnesses. And the first witness that he picks, (laughs) this is great. The first witness that he picks is John the Baptist, which you know who John the Baptist was, don't you? John the Baptist was one of their own number. He's one of them. Um, If you look back into Luke chapter one, got a kick out of this. Back in Luke chapter 1, and you don't necessarily have to turn there, don't don't mean to have you flipping around in your Bibles. But in Luke chapter 1, we understand that uh, verse 5, in the time of Herod, uh, king of Judea, John's father is mentioned. He's Zechariah, okay? And it says in verse 5 that he belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife was also a descendant of Aaron. And as that begins to go down, as the story begins to unfold, you see by the casting of lots that Zechariah is chosen to be in the temple. The angel appears and the birth of John the Baptist is foretold. And so John the Baptist is one of their own number in this group. Okay. Now let me bring this to you and how strong I see this passage. It's two people are in, and this is not just casual uh, uh, arguing type of thing. This is intense, heated discussion. Uh, This is formal setting. This is, this is, there could be ramifications to the charges that are drawn here. And Jesus is picking his first witness and he picks one of their own number. It's this kind of thing. It's kind of the thing like if me and uh, Mark uh, were in this great steam feud between our two families And I'm saying that I'm right. And Mark's saying he's right. And I'm guaranteeing that I'm right. He's guaranteeing that he's right. And Mark looks to me and goes, grab your first witness and prove that you're right. And I say, I have my first witness. And he says, who is it? I say, it's your wife. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) And she stands up and she testifies on my behalf. Okay? That's the first witness that he picks. He picks one of their very own number. And he says, listen, you should know this because John, verse 33, John, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Okay. You you should know this. That John has testified on my behalf. One of your own guys. You should get this. You, You should. This shouldn't be a surprise. He has testified. And the passage says to the truth. Now, throughout the gospel of John, when you're talking about truth, truth is not facts. And this is wonderful. See, truth is not facts. It's not right and wrong type of language. Truth is always equated, as in John chapter 14, verse 6, as the person of Jesus. Jesus is the truth. The perfect illustration of that or the perfect way to grapple with that is the way we understand the scriptures. Uh, I get into uh, conversations about, with non-Christians, and I don't know really how you'll think about this, but... They have trouble sometimes believing certain stories in the Bible, whether they're true or not. Well, I don't care. <laughs> they say, you know, raised from, you know, Lazarus from the dead or, or maybe a Bedouin that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Come on. I don't believe that. And I don't care if they believe it. I really don't care if they believe it. Because the facts of the story, in my opinion, and they do have a place, you understand, but whether they actually happen or not, really when it comes down to it, in my own understanding, in my own mind, really doesn't make the difference because the truth is not tied up in the facts of the story. The truth is tied up into the concept which the author is using to try to tell, if that makes sense. See, Juneman and I gotten uh, uh, talking about John chapter 8 and, and how in John chapter 8 some manuscripts show that it's not there. And then you have passages in Luke that are just gone altogether. And see, what does that do? <laughs> it doesn't do anything to me. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me whatsoever. Because the truth behind it, really. See, the truth behind it is what he's trying to say. If that never happened, I don't care. See, the royal official, was it a royal official? Was it a Roman centurion? Who cares? It's the passage. It's the truth that the author is using. Crinda gets on me, because I lie all the time, from the pulpit. Um, I, I get stories. I do, I get stories. And not on purpose, but I get stories all mixed up bad and we'll come after the story and she'll be like listen it wasn't it it wasn't aunt tana it was uncle randy okay and then, and it wasn't in dunkirk it was in california and it wasn't an apple tree it was a chevy okay but the problem is if, if, even though i lied throughout the whole point of the story the facts of the story are not what's important it's the truth which is the person of jesus which is illustrated by the tr- by the story does that make sense so what John is talking about when he's writing that, hey, when, or when, rather when Jesus is talking to them, that John has come and testified to the truth. He's not saying that John has come and listed a bunch of facts. That's what he's talking about. He has come and is, he, he has testified to Jesus, which is the fulfillment of God's plan. See, John the Baptist... Okay, Jesus says, listen, I'm the plan of God. I'm the fulfillment of, all, of the plan of God. All of these Old Testament prophecies that God spoke concerning me, they are coming to fulfillment in me. And he picks his first witness, John the Baptist, who testified about this before Jesus testified about this. So the plan by which Jesus is saying is true has already been talked about by John the Baptist who came about before John the Baptist. Jesus. Let me me say that again. The plan that Jesus is saying is true. Okay, he picks John the Baptist as his first witness who comes and testifies about the plan before Jesus came about, said John the Baptist twice. And so what we're talking, see what what Jesus does here is he says this plan, see it should not be hidden from you. You should not be surprised about it because one of your own, see you have sent and uh, here in the passage when it says you have sent and he has testified, those are both verbs and they're in the perfect tense. Which says it's a past action that has ramifications to the present in it. And if you go back in the past, the only past that John knows in his book, back to John chapter 1, which you really don't have to, although it really brings light to a lot that's going on in this conversation, uh, you read of that, of that interrogation and of that delegation and when they came out and they're, in, and they're investigating John the Baptist, see all that, he's just the witness. He, it's all he's talking about is Jesus. He's just point, pointing to Jesus. And they're asking him, who are, you? who are you? And it's as if he's not concerned about who he is. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And Jesus says, or and John says in verse 23, the Baptist that is, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. What God talked about in the Old Testament that he was going to do in the New Testament, what he's going to do in the New Covenant Hour, what he was going to do in his plan. Hey, I'm telling you, that's, I'm pointing to the one to come. And then he even says that at the very end, among, uh, verse 26, towards the end, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So the first witness that Jesus calls is John the Baptist... who, involved in the plan, testifies about the plan... before Jesus comes and testifies about the plan. So Jesus says, you should know this. John, you sent to him. You talked to him. He testified to the truth. Not facts, but to me. The fulfillment of the plan. He's been talking about this. This confirms that I didn't make up this plan... because his ministry started before my ministry. Now what's really interesting is John goes on a little further in his writing, and really I should say Jesus goes on a little further in his talking, and he says, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved, which has all kinds of, all kinds of notions in that passage to me personally. See, how far, how far has God come? How far has he gone in our life in order to speak his plan to us in our life? I mean, He the whole attitude of Jesus here, it's, and we're going to get to this in a second. But the whole attitude of Jesus here is not to be right. He's not, he's not concerned with right and wrong. He's not, he's not afraid to be wrong. There's no, see, there's no pride here. There's, you know, you get in arguments. And even though you're really wrong, well, she's not going to know that I'm wrong. And, and you have that kind of inner defense system. See, Jesus says, listen, the only reason I'm doing this, the only reason we're talking about this is so that you may be saved. And you almost were, he says in verse 35. John was a lamp that burned and gave light. Now, this is what he said. Before we look at that, he says, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. In other words, when John first came and began to talk about the plan of God coming to fulfillment, oh, you liked it, you were excited. You chose for a time to enjoy it. And why wouldn't you? Um, John was a pretty amazing fellow. And I remember reading about him a little bit in college. And of course, commentators talk a lot about him. But Josephus and Philo... uh, the first century, some historians and philosophers of his day. I mean, talked about John the Baptist. And anyone, really, who would do studies on him would tell you that he was phenomenal. (laughs) I mean, his ministry was so far and wide-reaching that... Uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, I think it was Philo who quoted said that when John was preaching the hearts of the people were raised they were lifted they were they were they were, they were enlightened and they would come out to hear him and, and thousands of people were coming out to hear they were a great he was a great great uh, uh, prophet of his day and uh, so much so that that even when Jesus and the uh, and the leaders of Israel were arguing in the temple you see they knew better than to say anything against John the Baptist or there would be a revolt. See, when when Jesus starts talking about John the Baptist and again, same message, different context, when he starts talking about John the Baptist in the temple in the synoptics and uh, he says, why didn't you know uh, who was John the Baptist? See, they're not just going to say, you know, he was uh, he was just a nobody or he was a false prophet because the people would have rose up because they were huge fans of John the Baptist. You understand? So he was a great proclaimer of his day. And Jesus says, for a time, you enjoyed his life. For a time, you enjoyed his ministry. For a time, when, G- when John the Baptist t- came and started talking about the kingdom, they enjoyed that. Which makes perfect sense, because who doesn't enjoy hearing about Streets of Gold, the coming in the Messiah, especially their own picture of the Messiah, their own understanding of the Messiah... And, and, and God is, you know, the kingdom of heaven is near and there's and this is powerful prophet and, and his voice is coming out and speaking and, and, and for a time they enjoyed that. But what's really interesting, he says for a time they enjoyed that, which means at first they really liked what he was talking about, but after a while they didn't like what he was talking about. Do you know why they didn't like what he was talking about after a while? Hear me on this. It's why I don't really like what he talks about after he's talking about it for a while. You begin to realize what the plan of God cost. Now, I don't think I'm reading into this. A couple other commentators have picked up on it, as a matter of fact. Probably don't take it as far as I will. But when it says, John was a lamp that burned. That word that John uses to use there to to describe Jesus' language and saying that John was a light that burned and gave light. The burned there should literally be translated burned up. Burned up. His ministry was costly to himself. I try to think like church growth strategists do. Okay? And how I would have responded, how I would have reacted if I'd have been in John's place, (laughs) he was big. We would call that big time. I mean, he was real big time. I mean, thousands of people coming out to see him. I mean, he, was, he had disciples just like Jesus did. Uh, I mean, even the Romans in the Roman rule. Herod would come out for a time and listen to John the Baptist. And it makes you wonder why he was out parading around in the desert all that time. Some people think that, you know, hey, you know he was just weird. I think he was... You know, hey, scouting out the land and looking to plant a church, you know. And where the, you know, Jerusalem was going to grow. That's how you grow churches. And, uh, uh, you know, population strategies. Isn't that right how you do that? Which area is going to grow first? He's looking to build a church. That's why he was out there. Um, Thinking like that. See, John had plans. Now get this. See, John, in his ministry, can you imagine the effect it had on him? I mean, and things... You understand, even Jesus talked about John the Baptist. None that have been born of a woman is greater than this man right here. I mean, phenomenal. And when he begins to talk about God's plan, that John was a lamp that burned and gave light. He burned up. I wonder, deep down, and John was wonderful, but I wonder deep down if there was some type of tension that maybe John's plan was not his plan. Uh, It makes me wonder that because, I mean, you hear it in John chapter 3 when the disciples come up to, his disciples come up to him and they're upset about Jesus that everyone's going to him and he says, hey, I can receive only what's given to me from heaven. But in the other gospels, you have him sending his own disciples to talk to Jesus saying, hey, are you the one? (laughs) Is this the plan? I mean, I want to be in the plan. There's no doubt I want to be in the plan. I want to be in his plan no matter what it costs. But is this really his plan? Am I supposed to end up here, (laughs) head in danger of being lopped off? See, is this his plan? And they go out and talk to Jesus, and Jesus says, go tell him what you see. And the cost of being in the plan for John the Baptist, I don't really care what the cost is for him. The point is, is the cost for John the Baptist was that it was not going to be his plan. I wonder if when John the Baptist comes and testifies about Jesus... And he begins to talk and they begin to hear that the kingdom of heaven is near. And yes, the Messiah is coming and they get all excited. And then he begins to talk about a Messiah that didn't fit their plan for a Messiah. I wonder if that's when they said, uh. Oh. And they begin to back. I wonder if that's when they stopped enjoying the light that was coming from John the Baptist. And it's all over this passage that in order to get in the plan of God, this is so strong. And he's testing, See. The core of the testimony. See, the core of what he's testifying about. See, any time, I'm finding, especially in this gospel, any time, any time you want to get into the plan of God, any time you get close to what God is doing, see, your dreams, your plan, your aspirations, your goals seem to diminish, and his takes supreme in your life. Which is even going on, see, Jesus, even in the passage, is not interested in his plan of winning the conversation, winning the debate. See, the whole thing is that they might be saved. It's all about his plan. See, it's all about him. And as you begin to go through and you look at Paul and you look at Peter, obviously Jesus, you look at the disciples. See, it's, I doubt if their plans had to do with crucifixions. We know that wasn't the disciples' plans for the coming Messiah. Paul probably wasn't crazy about how you know, his plan turned out. I wonder when it really comes down to it, and this is more about me than it is you, I wonder if I would be willing to accept his plan for my life even if it didn't look like my plan. Then you probably think I'm talking about ministry and stuff. (laughs) No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like good looks. Would you ever just accept the fact that you're ugly? If you were ugly? In the name of Jesus... That you wouldn't go get implants here and there. That you wouldn't go get wrinkle removal. That you wouldn't try to make, you know, stop dyeing your hair. <laughs> how, how far would you take it? Really? How far would you take that? How far would you take that? I am wonderfully and beautifully made. Except for my shoulders. So I'm gonna get implants on my shoulders, just, you know, so it's a little bit broader and I'm wonderfully and beautifully made. Except you gave me these white blotches and I just I go to the tanning bed. I wonder if we could get so just dead locked on in our life onto him and his plan that no matter how hey, so no matter how it contradicted to my plan in my life, I would absolutely give up, surrender, stop, quit. Surrender, hey, die, whatever language you want to talk to until talk about until his plan was absolutely supreme. And I'm absolutely convinced. And I'm, see, they, they are not dead. See, they just weren't, uh, they had to be against Jesus for something. See, everything he talked about was against what they talked about. See, everything that he was for was against what they were for. Every dream that he had was against the dream that they had. And the reason they could not buy in is because, see, his plan did not match their plan. And I wonder every time, see, every time sin is produced in my life, I wonder it's I refuse to accept his plan, and I just prefer to choose my plan. That, hey, listen, I like the church you gave me, but, you know, that's not my plan for my ministry. I need to be a pastor of a church of 500. I need to be the kind of evangelist that is in these kinds of churches. I need to be dating the kind of person who is. What if we just saw our whole life in, in, in the viewpoint of his plan? Folks, I, maybe this thing is not that hard to figure out. Maybe, the, maybe it's about a cross, if you want to call use our language, maybe it's about a cross-style plan. Would you be willing to just flat out drop dead until his plan was absolutely supreme in your life and nothing else mattered? Nothing else mattered. You didn't have any other emotions than his emotions. You didn't have any other feelings than his feelings. No interest in his interest. You had the same kind of, that he had. You laughed at the same kind of things he laughed at. Same kind of corny things he was involved in. Same kind of corny things you're involved in. What they criticize you about, they criticize him about. I'm wondering if I really want that. Really easy to preach that kind of stuff. But I really wonder if I'm at a point in my life where I say, All I want is your plan. I don't care what that looks like. I don't I don't care what that is how abrasive that is in my life. I don't care what that does to me. I'm so I'm so tired of my plan. I'm so tired of my dreams. Could it be that I, I could just get smack dab in the middle of your will and your plan and, all, and, and maybe consider that it's true that you have a plan for my life, that you dreamed about me, that you have a point, and could I fit into your plan even this very week? I want that. Jesus, we love you this evening. I've always just, I've been looking. <laughs> I've been looking for the flaw in the Jew's life. Why did they hate him so much? What if you had a plan for marriage that was not my plan for marriage? My plan for marriage? To be happy. What if your plan for marriage was not about happiness, but it was about holiness? That you didn't put man and woman together to be happy. You put us together in the differences that we have and the abrasiveness. Maybe you put us together that we might become more like you. I am such a product of my world. I'm such a product of my own ambitions. I am such a product of my own desires. And Jesus, I'm so strangled by them, I don't even know how to get out of them. What What would it take for you in my life? to release me from those kinds of spiritual bondages that I may be free to be in the plan that you have. I'm just talking about free. I'm not even talking about wanting yet. Could that take place this week? Could that take place in our lives this week? How open could you allow us to be to see our marriages, to see our, to see our health See, we talk about healing and, hey, we want to be healed. But see, what if it's not in your plan that we're to be healed? Is your plan supreme to my plan? See, what's, what, what if it's not in your plan for me to be an evangelist? See, what I accept that? What if it's not in your plan that I have kids? There is a great need that is developing in my life that I might be kingdom-minded, that I might be so tight with you that I don't miss your plan that somehow your, your design and your pattern and your pleasure for my life would begin to well up inside of me and we would be so tight that the longings for my life would begin, begin to develop inside of me that I might begin to long for my life what you're longing for in my life. I don't want to miss it as the Jews missed it. It seems, Father, anybody who gets close to you and your plan has to lose themselves. I want to be lost tonight, Jesus. I really do. We want to worship You. We want to hear from Your Word. We want to come to the end of ourselves. Can we see through the eyes of Your plan? Can we be involved in a cross-style plan of losing our life, that Your plan for our life and Your vision Your future might become the core of who we are? We love You, Jesus. Singers, come and help me. I think you'll know this song. I think we did it last year.